The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Warby Parker, an easy way to buy prescription glasses and sunglasses online. Visit warbyparker.com for the free in-home try-on program. And by audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Mike Pascat, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, the Green Handshake Edition. It is Wednesday, March 19th, 2014. And on today's program, we're going to talk about the new Muppet movie and the Muppet place in the world. We'll also talk about the web series High Maintenance and Tipping. What about tipping? Kind of everything about tipping with John Swansburg, editorial director of Slate.com, and Jessica Winter, who is the senior editor at the online magazine Slate. And uh, guess what? I guess the listeners have discerned this is the bizarro Gab Fest. There are no regular Gab Festers here. We've taken everything they stand for. We've turned it on their heads. That's right. We will soon endorse zeroing out NEA funding for the arts, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll also decry all granola except for the coconut. <laughs> what else, Jessica? I don't think we should go too far. <laughs> I thought we were just going to spend the whole um, show talking about how great Cheers was. <laughs> Everybody I, knows your name. All right, let's go to the Muppets. Muppets Most Wanted wasn't, at least if you look at the box office. The movie was expected to make around $25 million in the first weekend. However, it just managed about $16.5 million in North America. This is compared to the $41 million the Muppets made for their relaunch in Thanksgiving in 2011. This new film centers around a Kermit lookalike who exiles the actual Kermit to a gulag in order to use the Muppets as a cover for his international jewel thievery racket. And actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe I can understand why it didn't do so well over the weekend <laughs> in the box office. And before we get any further, let's listen to a clip from the movie. Listen, I'm telling you, you've got the wrong frog. If you are not Constantine, why do you have that mole? It's not real. Someone glued it to my lip. As far as authorities are concerned, you are Constantine. Glue or no glue. <sighs> Make yourself comfortable. You're going to be here a while. I wouldn't be so sure. My friends will be here soon. Now lights out. Turn them back on. I can't see anything. You'll have to wait till I'm, like, out of the hallway. It's figure of speech. So let's talk about the movie and if we liked it, and let's also talk about what this means for the Muppets in the world, because I think it was seen that after the, th the success of the first one, the Muppets will be back for a new generation. John Swansburg, you talked about this in a spoiler special. You wrote about the huge uh, Henson biography for the New York Times. Tell us a little bit about what you thought about the movie and where you think the Muppets are going from here, if you will. Uh, I'd be happy to. Um, I had a funny experience. I watched this movie, found myself more or less enjoying it when I was in the movie theater um, and when I walked out, although my sort of initial impression was, well, that was that was fun. It's always great to be in the company of Fozzie and Piggy and Kermit and see their hijinks, but I didn't think it was quite as good as the 2011 movie. And then I edit Dana Stevens, uh, our beloved movie critic and usual Culture Fest uh, panelist, and she really didn't like the movie. And over the course of editing her piece and then doing a spoiler special with her on the movie last week, 
week, I kind of like let her talk me out of my enjoyment of the movie. And now I find myself sort of when I think about it, when I was thinking about it, preparing for for today, thinking that she was sort of right, that this movie had a lot of flaws uh, that maybe didn't hit me at first. And I think the the one that she put her finger on that, that bothered me, and I'm curious if it bothered you guys, is that the the... The central plot problem with the plot wasn't so much the absurdity of it, although it does sound sort of absurd when you describe it, Mike, but that it separated Kermit for such a long time from the main body of Muppets. I mean, typically in the Muppet show in particular, but also in previous Muppet movies, a big part of the fun is sort of seeing Kermit try to manage this madcap group of performing puppets uh, and get them to sort of stick together as a group and, and typically put on a show at the end of the uh, affair. And here in this movie, Kermit was exiled to the gulag and basically kind of off camera for long stretches or, or by himself or, or with Tina Fey, uh, who plays a, a gulag uh, officer. Uh, and I thought that was problematic. They're, they sort of miss out on a lot of the typical Muppet fun when you, when you sort of separate the, the green frog from the rest of the guys. I don't think Kermit, Kermit's never been my favorite character. And so it wasn't the separating of Kermit. It's that we were spending so much time with Kermit, if anything. But I love Tina Fey, and I think she was fantastic. I think Ricky, of the three main human co-stars, Ty Burrell, Tina Fey, and Ricky Gervais, I think Gervais dropped the ball the most, and that was tough because he was paired with this new Muppet, Constantine, Mm. who we weren't supposed to like. But I think you guys are pointing to questions of execution. And maybe the problem with this movie was one of execution. Like, when they executed Kermit, spoiler alert, I mean, that really doesn't belong <laughs> in a Muppet. Okay, that didn't happen, kids. But, but I, I could they point... do, they do, Tina Fey does lick Kermit's back and then throw him against a freezing wall and yeah. sticks him there. I was just going to say, I wonder if that's like a sly reference to maybe our next topic, and she was trying to get high also when she did that. That was a, that was a rumor in the 70s. <laughs> I was just going to say that there are some other... Um... There are some other pretty adult themes. I mean, we, we get like a lot closer to the Kermit piggy um, sexual relationship than I think we have in any previous right. Muppets film or TV show. Just, Jessica, what did you think? Well, I think in the spoiler special, they, they do point out that there is a lot of splaining to do when you walk out of the theater with your right, six-year-old right. or whatever. Um, <laughs> What's the, a gulag? <laughs> how, to talk to, how to talk to your kids about Muppets. Yeah. That would be a good segment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talking to your kids about Muppets Most Wanted. <laughs> okay, so the main point is I don't know if the Muppets problem is one of a specific execution in this movie. I think that the Muppets lack uh, a certain je ne sais quoi, although I'll try to put my finger on a little bit, that really successful kid franchises have. And I was trying to think about what makes you know, a great movie. It could be a killer song like in Frozen that had other things to recommend it. I think an intricate A plot and B plot like uh, Finding Nemo would be good. Another thing that this movie doesn't have that really successful children's movies or franchises have is a way to adri- address universal anxieties in a really safe way. I don't think any of that was going on, so I don't think it was working on that deeper level. Sometimes franchises are successful for kids because they're intimately familiar with it and they've watched three episodes of the TV show. But I think the biggest thing is the Muppets aren't an immersive world. So it's not like the Lego movie. It's not like Cars. You don't give yourself over to this entire universe. The Muppets are more or less puppets in the regular world, and they adhere to the rules of um, just regular physics. And therefore, if the actual jokes aren't awesome, and if the characters aren't developed in a representative way, I don't know if kids are going to like them that much these days. That's a great point. Why do you think that this worked during the initial run 
of, say, the Muppet show or the Muppet movies from the 1980s? I mean, has something changed, something fundamental changed about either the, the execution of the films or the way or what kids are expecting from entertainment? Is it just that, you know, after the advent of Pixar, kids just the, the bar has been raised and kids are like, what are these ridiculous felt puppets gallivanting about? Well, how am I supposed to be interested in this when there's something so much more immersive and emotionally deep, uh, you know, that I'm getting every 18 months or so from the wizards at Pixar? Yeah, good question. I think it's two things. One is, I do think the technology has allowed all the movies to be immersive. But the other thing is, I don't think children are that familiar with the characters of the Muppets. And when there was a Muppet show, and when there was just more Muppet media, and maybe you could chronicle, it seemed like the 70s, 80s were high di- highlights of this. And even on Sesame Street, you got to know the character of at least Kermit and a couple of the other Muppets, and there was a lot of big overlap. And kids still watch Sesame Street now, but I, I, don't, I don't know if Kermit has that big a role on it. But I just, I think that the original show, when you saw Gonzo and he had only a couple lines, it was, it meant something. It was the Gonzo that you knew and you knew all his foibles. But here, I don't think the kids had, you know, I explained to my kids what Gonzo is and what his shtick is. And actually I went and, uh, or I was gifted the first three seasons of the Muppet show. And so, you know, it's really great to, uh, not only explain Muppets to my children, but James Coco, but still, I think that, (laughs) I think that in the first movie it might have been a lot of parents going to the theater and reliving their own nostalgia next to their kids but this one comes out and they turn to the kids and they say you want to see Muppets again and the kids aren't that into it that's my premise or theory I think there's maybe two more things that we can talk about in terms of why the first wave worked and the and the next wave didn't the Muppet show specifically it took place in an in an enclosed hermetic universe unto itself. And so the Muppet Show was an immersive world. It was a recognizably human world in that it was the backstage world of putting on a show. And there were obviously humans interacting with Muppets, but it, it, it was immersive in that way. And so it was probably easier to, to pull off than Kermit and Piggy, you know, riding a bike through where are they? Regents Park and Muppet Caper, I can't remember. But the other thing about it, and I don't want to harp on this too much because it, it, it might seem churlish, but any Muppets project undertaken since 1990 is part of this like cultural compulsion to never, ever let anything go. You know, the inability to say, we had Jim Henson here on Earth for many, many years. He gave us a priceless repository of art and characters and memories and let's honor and cherish that work, which will be with us forever. No one can ever take that away. No one can ever take away the, you know, the specific physics and chemistry uh, happening between Henson and Frank Oz and all of those uh, guys who were part of that original troupe. And instead, you know, we just have to reanimate what is, for all intents and purposes, gone. That's most of it for me is just these aren't really the Muppets for me. And that might be nostalgic or just my age or something, but it's not the real thing. It's it's a cover version. I would add two things to that that are related. One is particularly with the, the Muppet show, the original Muppet show, but I think this is also true of the original Muppet film. Uh, the Muppet show itself was a work of nostalgia. It was nostalgia for a type of variety show that Henson grew up That's watching in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, and was a, he was a huge fan of Sid Caesar. And so that, that, I mean, when we were, when our parents were watching uh, in the 1970s, they were watching the show that was nostalgic for an earlier generation's entertainment. So to be like a seven-year-old kid 
now watching a movie in 2014 that still has traces of of a 1970s nostalgia for a 1950s form <laughs> yeah. of entertainment is just to be completely mm. at a loss, I think. And even probably for a lot of people who are like 35 and who didn't you know, watch or uh, understand that kind of entertainment or, or feel steeped in it the way Henson was, I think that's a, that's a big deal. And the other thing to your second point, Jessica, which I think is, is a valid one, um, you know, Henson really performed – uh, Kermit, like right up through uh, almost the end. It wasn't just like, oh, we don't have Henson around anymore to kind of guide the vision of the Muppets or or sort of be a steward of, of the brand. It was his hand was in Kermit. When Kermit made a face, that was Jim Henson's hand and that was Jim Henson's voice. And one thing that really jumps out at me at, in both the 2011 movie and this current one is Kermit's voice doesn't sound like the Kermit that that we grew up with. I mean, I think it's a perfectly fine version of it. But like when Kermit opens his mouth at the beginning of the movie, you that that is the first feeling that I have. Still, it's the shock of remembering that Jim Henson isn't there anymore and that that voice isn't there anymore. I'm not sure I necessarily agree that you that the Muppets couldn't continue and be great. But it but for people like us who did grow up with Henson's hand in the in the piece of felt and the ping pong balls, it it does have that have a sort of powerful effect. I think. The last thing I'd like to say is one of the reasons I think why the maybe the Muppet franchise isn't booming, and this is a little tough to admit, if you look back as I did and watch seasons of the Muppets, I don't think Jim Henson was funny, necessarily. <laughs> I think he was extremely imaginative, and I think he did things that you know, made you gape and wonder. My point is most of the humor on The Muppet Show was really bad. Like you have Fozzie, who's supposed to be a bad comic, but he was a bad comic. Then you had these scenes, these ballroom dancing scenes with four wisecracks in a row. And it was like written by unprofessional... It was... And watching them, I said to myself, are these written by professional writers? It just seems like maybe the puppeteers tried some jokes. But many of the jokes don't even adhere to bad joke structure. They're just flailing. And I thought that the Muppets then, it did occur to me that it occupied sort of a pre-Simpsons place where it's this wonderful universe uh, populated by all these different personalities. But a typical Muppets show will have characters you love, will have one or two really inventive sketches, will have a song and interaction with the guest and a running gag but when they just go for the joke it didn't really work that much and even i even remember you know muppets take manhattan to this day as whatever i was what however old i was when i saw it 10 there was this running gag about we need something in this show we need something in the show and then finally kermit reveals what we needed was more chickens and frogs and pigs and rats and i just remember thinking that is so lame you know <laughs> so i think that when compared to the genius that is the Lego movie, or just the genius that is Cars, uh, the Muppets. Cars? Yeah. <laughs> of first all cars, the Pixar it, movies, you're going to choose Cars. Oh, I think the first Cars was fantastic. Look, I think The Incredibles, the Incredibles is my favorite Pixar movie, and Up was the most touching Pixar movie, and Finding Nemo is kind of the most perfectly crafted Pixar movie. But yeah, Cars, cars delivers a lot. Anyway, This is a I whole other podcast. <laughs> Mike Pesca on Cars. Mike Pesca lists his favorite <laughs> Pixar movies in order. I want that to happen. I want that to happen, too. All right. And that is The Muppets Most Wanted, playing at theaters everywhere still. Let's go to our first sponsor. It is Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. They offer more than 150,000 audiobooks, which you could play on nearly any device, including the one you're listening to us on right now. Audible has a special offer for Culture Gab Fest listeners. You get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at the special URL 
audiopodcast.com slash culturefest. You can choose your free book from the vast library, including everything from classics to the current New York Times bestsellers. But on the Culture Gab Fest, they're doing this thing where they're trying to help you read a bunch of books before you die. So you have to do two things. You have to get these books and you have to not die. John, <laughs> what's a good book to put on this kind of bucket list of culture? Well, it's a, that's a daunting task to add to the... Uh august titles that are already on this list but uh i thought i would throw one out that's um, dear to my heart and i think that uh gabfest listeners would really like and that is the autobiography of ben franklin uh which has many things going for it it is short ish so you could listen to it uh, pretty quickly on a series of jogs or commutes uh and it's great fun uh, listening to benjamin franklin tell the story in his own words of how he went uh from being one of 17 children uh of a humble candle maker in boston uh to being one of the founding fathers of our great nation uh later obviously an envoy to france i believe he invented lightning he had many uh different <laughs> impressive feats during his life and um it's it's a fun it's a fun listen and that is benjamin franklin autobiography unabridged we're going to choose the version as narrated by robin field on audible.com and your sub your membership also includes a free subscription to either the new york times or wall street journal daily audio digest so give it a try today and please use the url so audible knows that you are a culture gab fest listener it's audiblepodcast.com slash culture fest so next topic is a web series, High Maintenance. The series follows a pot delivery dude who lives in Brooklyn. It's played by Ben. He doesn't really have a name. He's just called your guy, as in, why don't you call your guy? High Maintenance has been around for 15 episodes, which is good. It indicates uh, how long the show's been going. So why are we talking about it now? Well, first of all, we maybe got a little slowed up. We were toking the Hindu Kush. But the slow <laughs> show's creators are selling magnets as a fundraising ploy. That's our peg for this for this, I'm going to say this entertaining and interesting series. Jessica, are you a fan of web series in general, and this in particular? You know, I'm I'm not up on my webisodes, um, but I, I think this is a sort of diabolically perfect format for this show because it constantly leaves you wanting more. I totally went and bought some magnets because I want more episodes of this show. It is so good at very quickly drawing characters with precisely chosen strokes, and better yet, it's so good at drawing the relationships between brand new characters, sort of subliminally shading in backstory and history. You feel like you know these people just after a few minutes. And then the moment you really feel yourself sinking into this new world that has been sketched out for you, it's on to the next episode. And so it's completely addictive in that way, but I would really love to see the two creators of the show who are also husband and wife get the chance to have a, a broader palette and maybe a, a, a longer time frame. Like I would love to spend half an hour with pretty much any character that we've met on the show. Yeah, a lot of people have, have compared um, the series to feeling almost like the best kind of short story for the reasons that you decided, Jessica. And I feel like, I, I agree. I, as much as I love these short stories, it left me feeling like, oh, I want the novel. You know, yeah, I want to see. That, I want to see what these guys do. And I strongly suspect that if Hollywood isn't completely idiotic, uh, that someone will give these guys a chance because these. I, I felt like this was just an incredibly successful series. I sat down to watch a handful of them to get a, a feel for it and watched, I think, all, what is it, 11 or 12 or 13, just like in one sitting. They're, they're really short, too. They're six minutes or maybe at max 10 minutes. Yeah, at this point, you can sit down and if you allot two hours or maybe even a little less, you can watch the whole show to date. 
And you probably will, I think. Yeah. But what kind of state would one be in where they just want to watch web episodes for two hours? Oh, that's right. <laughs> if they were really high. But I think it probably if you were high, and I haven't been high since I was like uh, 19 years old, but if you were really high, I don't think you'd enjoy this that much. There's a lot of good nuance and detail, and it's not, there's no slap your knee funniness. It's like you say, finely sketch characters. And also, I mean, I think I had a misimpression about this series from just having heard about it kind of word of mouth and from its title, uh, High Maintenance, that it was, at essence, a, a weed comedy. So I was sort of thinking, if not Cheech and Chong, something, you know, along the lines of Pineapple Express, where there was going to be like a, a tremendous amount of bong hitting and like glassy eyed tomfoolery. And that's really <laughs> yeah. not what you get here. The kind of genius of this show or one of one of its great strokes is that it uses the weed delivery guy as kind of a narrative device, a way into the homes and workplaces of all of these um, people who live uh, in a very recognizable Brooklyn, and weed is certainly present in the story, and people do rely on the weed delivery guy for his product, but there's not that much smoking, there's not that much goofiness, it's really just right. a conceit, and it's a smart one. And the difference between this and other web series I've seen and that have been recommended is those usually are variations on a theme. In fact, regular series are often variations on a theme. And when it's Curb Your Enthusiasm and when it's done well, you like living with the characters. But here, there's, I think, a more, uh, I hate to use the word realistic, but characters aren't as static. Uh, there, there are a lot of them, and some of them reoccur. But the first episode I saw, I think I saw them out of order, was one called Olivia with two really terrible people, this queenish guy and this totally solipsistic uh, girl. And they actually wind up stealing from the guy, the pot dealer. And I kind of thought this would be the series where they observe certain types, certain Brooklyn types. And there is a lot of talk about, you know, artisanal food products and locavore stuff. But they, they just relentlessly mock, almost like Portlandia mocks types. But this has a lot of love for a lot of its episodes. And even the main character, he's not a Larry David or a uh, a David Brent in the original office where... Everything he does and all his good intentions are always thwarted. He has a bit of a schlub about him. He tries to help a lady pick her stroller up as she's walking into her brownstone, and she snaps at him, Give, get your hands off my stroller. But there are also, he has also moments of grace. He has moments of heroism or near heroism. And then he has moments of, you know, totally fucking up. And, and they use his character sparsely. So I kind of loved their take on the world, which is it's full of some crappy people. It's full of some ridiculous people. It's full of some people who have a lot of dignity. That's different from most series, let alone most web series. I completely agree. I think you really put it well there, Mike. And also, I think the Portlandia comparison is one that I had as well, but it doesn't hit that that sort of mockery nearly as hard, I think, as, as Portlandia does. There are, it does have some wry observation about the absurdities of Brooklynites, but that's not the point of the show. That's sort of, it's sort of woven into the fabric of the show, and it really is more about these characters and, and their lives and their very idiosyncratic uh, existences. And I think it does put a finger on what it's like to live uh, if in Brooklyn and, and maybe a lot of places like Brooklyn, but without sort of shading into caricature. I wonder if it says something about the tyranny of the half-hour sitcom or even the hour-long dramedy, which is, you know, 23 or 47 minutes or whatever when you take out the commercials. I mean, The Louis Show, which is one of the most critically praised, deservedly show, there are two 15-minute episodes per show, and these episodes want to exist at, you know, 8 to 12 minutes, so... Is there something about the half-hourness of shows that, you know, lengthens them, makes them lame, sort of forces you to have the old A and B storyline, just be, has become way too familiar? 
I think that's a fair point, but I, I also you could look at it two different ways. I mean, you could you could look at high maintenance and say, okay, this is a ten minute episode, and so they were able to cram all the best stuff into ten minutes, and they left all the crap on the cutting room floor. But for me, kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier, I just want more of it. <laughs> I want the twenty two minute version of the show. I want the 30-minute version of the show. Uh, one other accolade I could heap on top of the pile that we've uh, accumulated thus far for high maintenance <laughs> uh, is just that I think the, the casting is outstanding. And, and uh, the wife, uh, Katya Blickfeld, uh, of this duo who created the show is a casting director, and I believe was an Emmy-nominated casting director for... Uh, she was nominated for the Emmy for her work on 30 Rock. And I think one of the successes of the show is just they found a lot of really great comedic yeah. actors who you don't recognize, or at least who I didn't recognize. Maybe if you, you know, are a denizen of New York's comedy clubs or, or watch more webisodes uh, as a matter of course than I do, these people would all be familiar. Uh, I'm sure but, maybe a bunch of them have shown up as corpses on one of the <laughs> uh, on one of the Law and Order series. Exactly. Well, Ben Sinclair himself, who's the who plays the drug delivery guy and who is the co-creator, I went to his IMDb page this morning. Just to, he looks vaguely familiar, and I felt like I'd seen him something in something before. But uh, here's a here's a list of the characters he's played uh, in a variety of TV shows I mostly didn't recognize. <laughs> Wild-eyed guy, lunatic, <laughs> Brooklyn idiot. That was my favorite. That was actually on Thirty Rock. Homeless guy. Uh, and then most recently, I think before this, he played drunk number one uh, in, a, in a TV series called A Gifted Man. So, you know, and he has said uh, in an interview that I read that, you know, one of the reasons that they wanted to create this series was to g- to give him a better role uh, and not have him play drunk guy number one. Uh, and also, I think, to give roles to all these other wonderful uh, actors who are in the series. And, and, and that's like an exciting part of the webisode-ness of this, I think, that like this medium can give work to people who are being overlooked by um, the, you know more traditional media for whatever reason. And I strongly suspect that this series will launch some careers, which would be great. That said, even though they're raising money via magnets on the internet, on the episode that's premiering today, the day this podcast goes up, they have Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey in the lead role, which is pretty exciting. That is pretty exciting. I, I'm uh, amused that uh, Dan Stevens demanded that Matthew Crawley be killed off from Downton Abbey so that he could go and do a uh, high maintenance episode. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the role I was expecting from him after Downton Abbey, but I, I salute him for choosing this. Me too. Good job, Dan Stevens. And it only it makes you think. You know, what could these guys do if they sold a bunch of magnets? I mean, the you know, <laughs> the world is their oyster, really. If if everybody yeah. goes and buys a magnet, yeah. High Maintenance. There are 13 episodes and a blooper reel. They're available on Vimeo and wherever uh, web series are sold. And you can get their magnets at where? I don't know. On their Vimeo page. On their Vimeo page. It's the yeah. last video when you scroll down. There's a, there's a one-minute video asking for donations. This, so watch the magnet video and all the others. The magnet video is quite good. I wouldn't disparage it. <laughs> and now I'm going to tell you about our second sponsor, Warby Parker the maker of fine, fine eyewear. So Warby Parker, I just found this out, they got their name from a combination of characters in a Jack Kerouac novel. Does it really matter? I don't know. What matters is that Warby Parker is dedicated to the premise that eyeglasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Prescription glasses starting at 95 bucks, including prescription lenses. The Titanium Collection starts at 145 So aside from not costing too much, they also have this try-on program. You could order five pairs of glasses to be shipped directly to you free. You try them on. You see what you like. You mail back the ones you don't like. There's a prepaid package. To figure out how to do this, go to warbyparker.com slash cultural 
That's a uh, URL just for us. So please do that if you want to check out the five-day glasses. Going to warbyparker.com slash cultural will also earn you free three-day shipping, five glasses. And then they have this charity thing where if you buy a pair of glasses, they'll give a pair of glasses to someone in need. Again, warbyparker.com slash cultural. They look good. They're for a good cause. They allow you to incorporate their glasses into your hectic life slash your lazy, lazy pot-smoking life. And moving on. For topic three, let us start with this apocryphal tale. Frank Sinatra staying at the Plaza Hotel. He says to the bellhop, what's the best tip you've ever gotten? And the bellhop says, $100, Mr. Sinatra. So Frank peels two C-notes off his wad, gives the guy 200 and says, now let me ask you, kid, who was that guy who gave you 100 And the kid says, well, it was you, Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> so if this joke were told, or whatever it is we're told today, would Jay-Z make an e-payment? This summer, Brian Palmer, writing in Slate, detailed the downsides of tipping. It's inefficient, it's illogical, it's regressive. Now, electronic platforms are expanding who tips and how much, as Jordan Weissman writes in Slate, Sometimes we'll, you know, quote someone who writes in some other publication, but why bother? <laughs> but anyway, so as Jordan writes, there are some early signs that electronic payment platforms may turn out to be very effective in persuading more people to tip a bit more often. So there's now a Starbucks app, which asks you if you want to tip in a way that all but the most aggressive barista never would ask. Jessica, what's your tipping manifesto? Okay, I need to make a full disclosure, which is two of my siblings are or were in the restaurant industry. For decades, my brother co-owns two restaurants. They both supported themselves through school and came up through the industry with the help of, of tips from waiting tables. So for me, debating whether or not to tip someone is sort of like debating whether or not to call your grandma on her birthday. It's just, <laughs> it's just not up for discussion. So, so, so where do you come down on that? With, <laughs> so with that disclaimer... I think it's interesting that Starbucks is introducing this because Starbucks does have a reputation, deservedly or not, for treating its employees well, paying them well, giving them benefits. It's this rare example of a globally successful company that really prioritizes treating their their employees well. And the restaurant industry does not treat their employees well. If they did, they would pay them a living wage and not pass that cost on to the customer in the form of tips. And the customer has no way of protesting this arrangement other than not going to restaurants. If you go to a restaurant and refuse to tip, all you're doing is is screwing over the waitstaff who did not choose the system, which is basically the result of a collusion between the government and the restaurant industry. So with Starbucks introducing tipping, it's almost more attractive because it's less compulsory. You don't have to tip. There's, there's no kind of social pressure or, uh, you know, government collusion with the restaurant industry-induced pressure to tip. You can just tip because you feel like it, because you want to reward hard work. And I think that's great. John, who don't you tip? <laughs> <laughs> I never tip anybody. No, um... I like to think that I'm a, I'm a, I spread it around pretty good uh, that I that I tip folks who uh, who are expecting a tip, and I would have to say I have to say I am happy about this Starbucks uh, movement in particular. I have to say I was sort of appalled. I actually sent um, a link about this uh, new tipping capacity in the Starbucks app around to the Slate staff, and a bunch of people seem to be um, confused about the whole idea of like why you would tip a barista at Starbucks, um, and some of these same people. 
uh, seem to be the or said that they were the kind of person who does tip at like a mom and pop coffee shop. But they sort of assume that because Starbucks is this big kind of corporation and I guess one that does you know have a, a legacy of taking care of its employees or at least by comparison to some other uh, big corporations that it didn't it wouldn't make sense to to tip your Starbucks barista. Uh, and I actually have a very strong relationship with my Starbucks baristas, uh, <laughs> Teresa and Felicia at the um, Sheridan Square Starbucks in uh, New York City are incredibly good baristas. Like, you couldn't find a better barista at the fanciest Brooklyn triple-pull espresso mom-and-pop blah, blah, blah place. I mean, they they know my order. They start making it as soon as I walk through the door. They ask me how my day was. If I happen to be wearing a suit for one reason, for some reason, which happens like twice a year, they like <laughs> say I look nice. I mean, these guys are great, and I've never really had a way of of sort of like expressing my my admiration for how wonderfully they prosecute their jobs and how well they take care of me. So I'm I'm thrilled that I now have the ability to do that. And I guess it will feel that much better because there isn't the social pressure necessarily yet, like you said, Jessica, because there isn't there hasn't traditionally been a, a way to routinely uh, you know tip your barista at at Starbucks. I think some of them do have a tip jar and some of them don't, uh, but but people aren't in the habit of doing it the way they are in other places. Okay, I chafe at the. I chafe at the um, over-aggressive suggestion of the of what percentage my cab should be calculated at. Now, when it comes to uh, this, when it comes to restaurants, when it comes to even baristas, you know, there's this. It's it's terrible. The wage is as low as two dollars and thirteen cents an hour for restaurant employees. So they make a third of minimum wage, you know, less than a third of minimum wage. Some places mandate more, just like some places mandate that the minimum wage is more. But the restaurant industry is all tipping. Whereas the way the economics of a taxi work is, at least in New York, the guy rents his taxi from whoever owns it for, I think it's now up to like $110 for a 12-hour shift, and he just keeps everything. So the tip is much less important to him. So I always try to tip the waitress 20% or at least in New York where it's uh, where the tax is 8 and some change do the tax and then round up. But I usually try to tip 20%. But with taxi drivers, no way. I'm only tipping a couple of bucks. And with delivery guys, I am no way near tipping 15%. This idea that all industries have this 15% de facto tip is totally wrong, I think. Well, but one of the things that's interesting uh, and in particular with regards to this Starbucks news and just generally the movement towards paying increasingly with not just electronically but with either apps or websites is that I feel like we're moving towards a place where what you're doing is basically being given a button that has a percentage on it. And you can go around that if you're Mike Pesca and you're determined to give two (laughs) bucks to your cab driver because you're cheap. But, you know, if but the sort of default is hitting this button that sort of renders a percentage. And I think that that's going to be the case on the Starbucks app. And something like, you know, if you're ordering food from Seamless, uh, you know, so you're not sort of like peeling off ones that you happen to have in your pocket to give the delivery guy. You're sort of being forced to, to reckon with uh, the, that question and think about it as a percentage, you know, on the uh, at the moment when you're placing the order. I feel like it's going to have a, have a tendency to increase tips. And certainly that's been the case, uh, I think, with uh, New York City cab drivers, who at first, my impression anecdotally was that they hated the credit card systems that were installed in their cars because they were not, no longer getting cash that they could put in their pocket. Um, but now I think they've all come to recognize that the tips have gone way up for the, exactly the reason that you described, Mike, that people are just sort of hitting, they're lazily hitting that percentage button, even not thinking that that's higher 
than they would have done in the old days. The other thing about the payment system in New York taxi cabs is that it's really a testament to the power of those prompt boxes. I, I'm with you, Mike. I used to just slap a few dollars onto the fare and call it a day. I never really saw the need to tip a taxi driver. And now, you know, I'm a, I'm a Frank Sinatra tipper with the taxi driver. You know, I'm hitting that <laughs> 20% button. It was you, button. Ms. Winter. <laughs> <laughs> that aside, I, th- I think tipping is here to stay. I think that we, though, as consumers, have to get a little smarter about it. And then the market will change. I mean, I think that there are a lot of bars, for instance, where bartenders don't even, they just expect a pretty good tip and they, don't, they won't give you anything extra because of it. So what I like to do is tip the untippable. Not the, not the bribable, but people just don't expect a tip. So if we go to Starbucks and give the extra 75 cents or a dollar or whatever to our barista, I do that to the guy at CVS. I do that to the guy <laughs> at Walgreens. I'll say, you keep the change. They won't know what to do. I'm like, all right, just take a dollar. They don't maybe like the change. But I'll give a guy a dollar if he tells me, you know, I, I've actually said, Could, can I get curly fries? And they said no. And I give him a Abe Lincoln essay. Abe Lincoln says he wants curly fries. They still say no, but it's just such a great interaction. It's worth doing. <laughs> Are people ever terribly confused that you're, that you're handing them money? Yeah, you know, like when it was my uh, kid's principal and I wanted a better class. <laughs> looked at me sort of askew. No, I, they, they're definitely confused, but I like to give them a buck. I'm going to say, nah, that's for you. <laughs> All right, tipping, an institution available near you. Check out the Jordan Weissman piece that got us thinking about this, about the new uh, apps that Starbucks is using, and that's, of course, on Slate.com. Now is the time in the show when we endorse. John Swansburg, you go first. I'd be happy to. Um, Okay, I would like to endorse uh, a piece of journalism. Uh, In particular, I'd like to endorse uh, a really long, really deeply reported feature that ran in the Boston Globe by a reporter named Eric Moskowitz, and it was about uh, a man named Jared Remy, who is the son of Jerry Remy, the uh, beloved TV color man for uh, the Boston Red Sox, who is, uh, I believe, several years ago was named president of Red Sox Nation, although I don't think that was an elected position. I think it was bestowed upon him. Um, and this uh, Jared Remy, as uh, some listeners may know, uh, has been accused of uh, murdering the mother of his child. And uh, this latest accusation comes uh, at the end of just a a series of arrests uh, and disturbances that Jared Remy has perpetrated over the years. And no one had quite done the long, deeply reported piece about the sort of the sad story of Jared Remy uh, and his his, uh, trip through the court system in Massachusetts. And time and time again, he was brought up on charges for hurting people, uh, for just doing all sorts of awful things. And time and time again, the justice system let him off uh, with a slap on the wrist or even less. Uh, and it's it's a truly awful story to read. It, it will make you angry at the justice system. Uh, honestly, as a, someone who grew up in Boston, as a Red Sox fan, it, it made me uh, upset uh, as a Red Sox fan. Uh, you know, it's not exactly clear the degree to which Jared Remy was let off the hook because of his father's place in, in uh, Red Sox nation, but it, it had to have played in the minds of some of the people uh, involved in giving him another shot. Uh, and he was given a, another shot one too many times. And it's, it's a truly tragic story. And Eric Moskowitz reported the hell out of it. Uh, and I, I think it's a must read whether you're from Boston or care about the Red Sox or not. I just read that piece yesterday. It is a fantastic piece of reporting. Yeah, highly recommend it. It's not, you know, it's not the most happy-making uh, story. You may need an episode of High Maintenance afterwards to unwind, but uh, it's really worth reading. 
Uh, and for folks who uh, do want to look that up, uh, the somewhat windy title is for Jared Remy, Leniency Was the Rule Until One Lethal Night. And it ran in the Boston Globe and was written by the reporter Eric Moskowitz on the Metro Desk. Jessica Winter, your time to endorse. So we were talking earlier about a new pinnacle in marijuana-driven entertainment, high maintenance. And I want to reach back in the vault a little bit and recommend a movie that not enough people saw when it came out, I think, seven years ago. And it made all of $180,000 at the box office, uh, which is a crime against the motion picture. It's called Smiley Face, and it stars Anna Ferris as a woman who unwittingly consumes cupcakes that are laced with cannabis. And then it follows her through her day as she attempts to fulfill a number of tasks. And the experience is both hindered and enhanced by the massive amounts of THC streaming through her system. Um, it's directed by Greg Araki, who also directed uh, Mysterious Skin with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, it's hilariously funny and weird. It's a total tour de force for Anna Ferris. And it definitely deserves a place in the pantheon of stoner comedies. And it's available on DVD via Netflix. Smiley face. That sounds awesome. So I have a dual endorsement, both somewhat comedy related. The first is a podcast called The Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. And it's not a comedy podcast. It's an interview podcast. But Jeff Rubin is affiliated with collegehumor.com. And what I like about this podcast is every episode is a deep dive into someone who is passionate about something. Often those passionate overlap with mine, but if they don't, that's fine. On either the plus or the downside, depending on how you look at it, is the fact that the episodes are long. The minimum one is 52 minutes with a Marvel Comics historian that I could find. But his interview with the guy who uh, is a professor of board games about why Monopoly sucks, fantastic. His interview with the international memory champion, also really good. The other one is a flat-out comedy endorsement. So my friend Zoe and I, about a couple times a month, we just go to live comedy in New York City. It's really not as cool as it sounds. Probably doesn't sound that cool. But, I mean, the two-drink minimums are terrible, and comedy clubs just really don't treat you well, and the patrons of comedy clubs are awful, and so a really good comedy club, like um, the Comedy Cellar, will have all these draconian rules about not moving or talking to counteract the terrible patrons. Anyway, that's not the endorsement. The endorsement is every once in a while you see this comedian who really pops, and I love the ca comedy, and I love the comedy of this guy named Gary Gullman. He has this routine. I mean, he has some, you know, conventional jokes, and then when the audience is on his side, he'll go out there, and he'll talk about real esoteric stuff. He has this routine about a supposed documentary about state abbreviations. I mean, it's like eight minutes with a very intense dialogue in the room where the deb they're debating how to abbreviate different states. Maybe it sounds better when he does it than when I explain it. But Goldman's going to be on the uh, Fallon show later this month. But just go to YouTube. He has a, he has a Netflix special out. He's all over YouTube. Gary, G-U-L-L-M-A-N. Okay, quick. Let's go around the horn. Self-assessment. How'd we do this week? Comparisons? Go. Oh, it's, it's tough to uh, fill the shoes of the regulars. Those guys are just, uh, they're so good. I, I feel like we're the last season of ER when none of the original characters are there anymore. <laughs> it's just more a Tierney and Goran yeah. Bujnik. I think it's the last, the last season of Roseanne where for no reason we would break out into song. Also, Julia Turner would never stiff a cab driver. Even <laughs> so true. It's class personified. You will find the links to some... Oh, oh before I get to this... 
the regular guys until unless we totally usurp them due to popular demand, but I doubt that's going to happen. The regular guys in a couple weeks are going to be talking about Walter Kern's new book, Blood Will Out. It's about Kern's relationship with this con man guy. Kern is a great writer and I've read an excerpt of the book and it seems great. Blood Will Out. And that's, I don't know exactly when, but it's not next week. It might be the week after. So if you want to get ahead of them in reading it, they recommend that you do. And you will find the links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you could email them at culturefest at slate.com or drop them a note at the Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. With help this week from Slate Culture intern Lance Richardson, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Jessica Winter and John Swansburg, I'm Mike Pesca. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.